Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we consider the book of Acts, chapter 15. And let me just say that it doesn't get any better than to hear the people of God lift up their voices to the throne of God and to say thank you for that grace. This is the highlight of my week. I hope it is yours as well to gather together with the people of God to celebrate His grace. Acts chapter 15, and this morning we will be in verses 1 through 12. As you find your way, let me just introduce our passage this morning by bringing your attention to the fact that uh, the world is a chaotic place right now. And knowing how it is and knowing also human nature, it is likely at least some of you, if not many, find yourselves in some form of controversy, either with relatives, co-workers, Sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, parents, friends, maybe other Christians. It is possible some of you might be involved in highly consequential and intensely heated uh, controversies, or at least you have been in the past. Maybe there are people in your life who are challenging uh, your core convictions and beliefs. But whether you are or not at the moment engaged in some form of controversy or debate, At some point, all Christians who actually hold to any truth with any degree of conviction will have to face some form of controversy in their lives. Now, what do we make of controversy? First of all, we don't glory in it. I think most would agree that controversy, especially the highly consequential and heated ones, are never fun. They can be difficult and taxing on both body and soul. Let us admit to that there is a reason why Jude called us to contend for the faith, not to cruise in the faith. At the same time, it seems rather clear that while not fun in the moment, the harder we are pressed to defend our convictions, the greater our growth in the truth. In that sense, most of our strongest convictions are forged inside the furnace of controversy especially when the heat is high and the subject at hand is highly, highly consequential. If Acts teaches us anything, is that preaching the peace of the cross of Jesus can and often does yield great controversy, heated debate, and fierce opposition as we saw last week. But even beyond the New Testament era, the entire history of the church has been marked by what? controversy, and of the fierce kind. In fact, you and I are here this morning due in great part to our brothers and sisters of the past who have fought the good fight and contended for the faith, and many of them even gave their lives and their blood for the truth. One such contender for the faith was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. If you haven't read his book, Christianity and Liberalism, I commend it to you. Machen was a Presbyterian New Testament scholar who was born in 1881, died in 1936, and lived defending the Christian faith. He knew controversy very, very well. On June 17, 1932, only four years before his death, Machen said these insightful words, even if somewhat counterintuitive, and I quote, Every really great Christian utterance 
it may almost be said, is born in controversy. It is when men have felt compelled to take a stand against error that they have risen to the really great heights in the celebration of truth, end quote. Elsewhere, Machen also said that, quote, controversy has resulted in a striking intellectual and spiritual advance. Controversy of the right sword is good, for out of such controversy, as church history and scripture alike teach, there comes the salvation of souls, end quote. Powerful words. At no other point in history, is my belief, has that statement been truer than in what we see developing in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. This chapter recounts a controversy, a major one. Moreover, I want you to think about this. Had this controversy not happened publicly and for the biblical record, we might not really know the true meaning of the gospel and we might be lost in darkness. So yes, controversy matters. It can be a blessing in disguise. So let's look at the controversy. Controversy begins in verse 1 of chapter 15 where we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The context is where we left off last Lord's Day, Antioch, just north of Judea. Paul and Barnabas are now back from their first missionary journey. While in Antioch, a group of Jews came from Jerusalem, and why did they go? They went to Antioch to teach the Gentile believers there at the church in Antioch that they needed to submit themselves to the law of Moses to have full acceptance as members of the people of God. In other words, they needed to become Jews by way of circumcision. Apart from circumcision and becoming Jewish, they could not be saved. This, my friend, is the mother of all controversies. The error was severe. Not only severe, but actually damning of souls. The stakes could not have been any higher than this. The heart of the gospel was at stake. Consequently, two things happened immediately. First, Paul and Barnabas confronted the false teaching. We're reading the first part of verse 2. That after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Who are the them? The Jewish delegation that came from Jerusalem. This was no joke. Paul and Barnabas wasted no time addressing the dangerous error being spread by this group of Jews. Second, a delegation was sent to Jerusalem from Antioch to consult with the church there regarding this matter. In the second half of verse 2, we read that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Why? Let me ask you that question. Why? Couldn't, couldn't Paul and Barnabas just handle it on the spot? I don't think so, and at least for two reasons. First, Paul and Barnabas understood the need to have a multitude of counselors to help decide this issue and bring decisive clarity for generations to come. 
especially at this stage in the church development. It was an infant church. Consider the second reason by thinking about this question. Why weren't Paul and Barnabas even more forceful with the Jews? Why not simply call the Jews to repent of this false teaching? Why not call them a curse? As Paul himself said that we should when someone brings a different gospel in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The answer lies in verse 5. After Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem and were welcomed by the apostles and the elders in verse 4, verse 5 tells us who these Jews were. What does it say? But some, what? Believers. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them, meaning Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, yes, these were Pharisees, and the ones who originally sent the group up to Antioch to teach these things, but the Bible says they were also believers in the gospel. In other words, they were not, no longer blatant enemies of Jesus, but mostly and severely confused about the message of the gospel. This was a controversy within the church. In other words, Paul and Barnabas, even though they debated them, they granted these people the benefit of the doubt as love should. Just think about it. From a Jewish perspective, how important was circumcision and the law of Moses? They were critical. Circumcision represented their membership in what? The Abrahamic covenant and the law put them under Moses. You wouldn't just dismiss either one with one blow. The Jews shaped their entire identity on being sons of Abraham, members of the covenant of circumcision, and bound by the law. But now, they were believers in the gospel who suffered from the doctrinal leftovers of a legalistic system that had corrupted the true nature of these otherwise good things. So even though Paul and Barnabas did debate them, and strongly so, as Jews themselves, they fully understood the sensitive nature of this issue. There was an entire religious background behind this dangerous teaching. But notice that they didn't simply or quickly dismiss them as heretics. On the other hand, it would have been absolutely devastating for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish community of believers, to submit themselves to circumcision and the law, primarily because it would have been destructive to the essence of the gospel of grace in which they had believed. After all, as Paul and Barnabas declare in verse 3, and you can read that with me, the Gentiles had been converted to the true God through faith in Jesus. It was a true conversion. It was true salvation. Later on in verse 12, they will again speak of how God performed signs and wonders among the Gentiles. It was all true. So I say all that simply to say that Paul and Barnabas couldn't just explain the controversy away. Thus, they decided to go up to the church in Jerusalem to seek counsel from them. The church at Jerusalem was by now more established. They had all the apostles and they had the elders and became a type of mother church for other churches. So they arrived in Jerusalem and basically said, Paul and Barnabas, guys, we have a problem at the church in Antioch. The Jews came from here insisting that the Gentiles become circumcised like them. 
We need a definitive answer. Let's talk. So what happened next in verse 6? We read that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. We are not given details of these conversations other than what we read in verse 7. Very interesting. After there had been much what? Debate. As you can see, the apostles and the elders were applying extreme caution and great discernment. It took much time because the, the essence of the gospel itself was at stake and unity in the church was being threatened. If the apostles and the elders didn't give their full attention, the church would have seen the first major split and the testimony of the gospel would have suffered greatly. These, this needed to be solved. But instead of giving us details, we are given two speeches in Acts 15, recorded for us. These two speeches represent the consensus between the apostles and the elders regarding this controversy. One speech is from Peter in verses 7 through 11, who was a leader among the apostles. The other speech is from James, the brother of Jesus, in verses 13 through 21, who by now he had become a leader within the church in Jerusalem. The end result of this controversy are recorded in verses 22 through 35. So let's dive in. The controversy is underway. Now please keep this in mind. It's very important. The response from the apostles and the elders expressed by Peter and James will reveal that the controversy essentially was an attack against five essential truths. As the apostles and the elders dealt with these attacks, five corresponding blessings resulted. So we're going to see two this morning. This would have been a, an hour and a half long sermon, but I cut it in half for your sake. So here's the first blessing that came out of this controversy. And as we see the blessing, we're going to see what was the attack. A foundational truth was applied. A foundational truth was applied. What was that truth? God has acted sovereignly. God has acted sovereignly. As Peter stands up, we know the believing Pharisees were listening. Remember, they were the ones who started the whole controversy by sending a group to Antioch. And the first part of Peter's response is about the sovereignty of God. And he presents his defense, and he puts forward three specific demonstrations of divine sovereignty, which is also divine authority, as it relates to the salvation of the Gentiles. The first demonstration is this. God sovereignly chose Peter as the first evangelist to the Gentiles. God sovereignly chose Peter as the first evangelist to the Gentiles. In verse 7, Peter said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that my, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believed. What is this about? What is the early days? More than likely, Peter is here recalling his first encounter ever with a Gentile. Who was that? Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. God taught 
Peter many things through that encounter. Remember what happened. Peter had a vision in which he saw a sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of what? Animals and reptiles and birds. Remember that story? I hope you do. And as Peter was seeing the sheet come down, he heard a voice that said what? Peter, kill and eat. What did Peter do? He strongly opposed that, those words because according to Jewish law, which was the only law he knew, those animals on that sheet were all unclean. unclean. He wasn't supposed to eat them at all. But then the voice says something shocking. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Of course, now we know that the vision was not primarily about animals, but about what? People. The animals represented a world that Peter did not know, the world of the Gentiles. So by saying, Peter, kill and eat, God was, in essence, telling Peter, stop thinking of the Gentiles as unclean. In fact, Peter, go and tell Cornelius, that Gentile soldier, that God loves him too. Through Peter, God sovereignly reached the first Gentile. The second demonstration is this. God sovereignly gave his Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. In verse 8, we read, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Now remember, this is a controversy. So Peter is making a case here. And what's the point? The point is to begin this discussion by establishing the foundation that God is God and he acts according to his Godhood. And so God being the sovereign Lord, out of his own goodwill and pleasure, he chose to give his Holy Spirit to the Gentiles also, not only to the Jews. How did they know that this was so? After all, the Holy Spirit is invisible. They knew this because Pentecost of Acts chapter 2 was replicated on the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. God was reaching into all the world. When the Jews received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, what did they do? They spoke in tongues. Guess what? The Gentiles also spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 10, which could only mean one thing. They too, the Gentiles, had the Holy Spirit. Here's a third demonstration. God sovereignly cleansed their hearts by faith. This is all the work of God. This is all the work of God. In verse 9, Peter continues his speech and says that God made no distinction between us, meaning the Jews, and them, meaning the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is big. Brothers and sisters, this is big. There are two statements in the Old Testament regarding the human heart that really bring out the wonder and the glory of what Peter is saying here. The first one is a statement of fact from Jeremiah 17, 9. What does that say? Most of you know it. The heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Clearly, what is the need of the human 
heart, which is the center of life, is to be cleansed. It is naturally wicked. It is naturally evil. The Lord Jesus himself expanded on this truth in much detail when in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus said this, For from within, out of the heart, I'm going to give you a clue, heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Do you know what the Bible always does? The Bible always locates the central problem of man within man, not outside of him. But the second truth from the Old Testament is a promise given through the pen of prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, verse 26, where God says through Ezekiel, and I will give you a new what? A new heart. The one that is deceitful and wicked. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is amazing. What happened with the Gentiles whose hearts were cleansed was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy and promise, which means that the promise of Ezekiel 36 was meant for both Jews and Gentiles. The point being this, salvation requires the miracle of a new heart. The Gentiles received that miracle. They received the cleansing of their heart. Therefore, the Gentiles also belong to the people of God, just like the Jews. And it was all the work of God and the work of God alone. God is in charge, says Peter. We don't get to make up the rules of how redemption works. This is what he's telling the Jews. You don't get to make up the rules. We've always known God is in charge. He's the one who saves. What we are seeing, says Peter, is the outwork of an eternal decree, a sovereign plan. Don't try to stand in the way. And that's the first blessing of this controversy. After much debate, they were able to apply the doctrine of divine sovereignty and concluded that what God had decreed cannot be changed. From this, we can glean that the Jews were saying in verses 1 and verse 5, what they were saying included an attack on what? God's sovereignty in salvation. Hence, Peter's words. That's why he starts here. In connection to this, Peter then says something interesting in verse 10. He says, stop trying to put God to the test. What does that mean? How do we put God to the test? Well, if you look at the context, you put God to the test when you diminish, when you corrupt, or do anything to minimize His sovereignty in salvation. Don't take it away from Him. It is all His. His all the glory is His. And that's what the Jews were doing. By teaching that salvation comes through the works of the law or circumcision, Peter tells them, you are, you are taking away from God's sovereignty in salvation. You are thinking less of God by attributing salvation to the deeds of man. Plus, Paul then, Peter then turns to the law and says that the law is a yoke, a heavy weight on our necks that neither the Old Testament saints nor we have been able to bear or keep. 
In other words, the law is good. The law of God is good, but it breaks us. It reveals our sin. It renders us without excuse. It condemns us. I know this, says Peter. Our fathers knew this, and even you know this, says Peter. The law is not meant to save you, but rather the law is meant to show you your desperate need of salvation, which you cannot have through the law. And so here we come to the heart of it all. Please consider with me the second blessing that came out of this controversy. A critical doctrine, a critical doctrine was sharpened. What is that doctrine? Grace is truly free. Grace is truly free. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, but we believe, says Peter, after having established the, the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Oh, what an important point. What were the Jews saying to the Gentiles? If we all want to be in unequal terms, you need to become like us, right? What does Peter say in verse 11? The true And the only equalizer between Jews and Gentiles is not circumcision, but the free grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond that, there's nothing. There is nothing. So the second attack embedded in this controversy was against the grace of God. We have reached the heart of this controversy. Here's the question of all doctrinal questions. What is the gospel? And that doctrinal question immediately yields the question of all practical questions, and that is, how are people saved? Therefore, the question, what is the gospel, is never simply a theoretical or abstract question. It is always a matter of life and death. If you get the gospel question wrong, you will get the second one wrong as well. Eternity itself is at stake. What is the gospel? How does God save? Well, Peter answered that in verse 11. Let's read it again. But we believe that we will be saved through circumcision, law, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The believing Pharisees answered both questions wrong. They were severely confused in dangerous error. To the doctrinal question, what is the gospel? The Jews answered, the gospel is Jesus plus circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. To the practical question, how are people saved? They answer, apart from Jesus and you doing your part by becoming a Jew, you cannot be saved, meaning there is no forgiveness of sins and God won't accept you unless you become like us. Nothing in this life, Nothing in your life is more consequential than those two questions. What is the gospel? How are people saved? Thankfully, there was controversy, and because of this controversy, this critical doctrine was sharpened. In verse 11, Peter shows that the truth was very clear in his mind, so allow me to read it again for the third time. But we believe, says Peter, that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus. 
There is nothing better than this because nothing goes higher, nothing goes deeper, and nothing goes wider than the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain as best as I know how what this grace of Jesus is. And I will begin by setting this grace against the dark backdrop of sin. You may be able to appreciate the beauty of a diamond, but it is only when placed against the backdrop of a dark fabric that its brilliance and beauty truly shine. This being the case, please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. If you're using our blue Bibles, this is in page 943. Romans 6, 23. Page 943 in the blue Bibles. And I want to ask you to please give careful attention, consideration to what you hear. Um, It is no exaggeration to say that these are some of the most important words you could ever hear. You could ever hear. And I want, you to re- I want you to consider the fact that God brought you to this place because he's, He did so sovereignly so that you could hear these words. It says, Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That deserves a series of sermons by itself. Now, the word wages... Most of us understand. Your wages is that which you deserve after a certain task. So if you go to a job interview, at some point, the question of wages will come up. And either you or the interviewer will bring it up. The wages, your wages is such and such. In other words, this is what you will get. And that question has to do with worth, doesn't it? When we talk about wages, we are in essence talking about the worth of what we do. So how much is my job, my skills, my contribution worth to this company or to my boss? In other words, what do I deserve? What do I deserve? This is revealing for Romans 6.23 begins by telling us what our wages is, meaning it reveals what we deserve. In other words, we all have done something that deserves something. More specifically, we have all done something toward God that deserves something back from God to us. What is that? Death. If you have sinned, then this is what God owes you. Death. That's what sinners deserve for what they've done. So I ask you, have you ever sinned? Well, what is sin? According to 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgression of the law of God. Sin is to live or act as though there is no divine law that applies to me. This is interesting. Remember what the believing Pharisees were telling the Gentiles to do in order to be saved in verse 5? It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. But then Peter says in verse 10 that the law is a yoke no one has ever been able to bear. It works like this. The law says, do not covet. 
So then the question is, have you ever coveted? The law says, do not commit adultery. So then the question is, have you or do you know what lust is? The law says, do not murder. So then the question is, have you or do you know what anger is? If sin is transgression of the law, which it is, and if we have all transgressed or broken that law, which we have, then what we deserve from God is our wages. You see, the most self-condemning, self-damning thing anyone could ever say to God is, God, give me my wages. God, give me what I deserve. You should never say to God, you should never come to a holy God and say to Him, God, give me my wages. Give me what I deserve for the life that I have lived. If anyone ever says that, then they clearly have never read Romans 6.23. Because if you have sinned once in your lifetime, then God will give you your wages. Death, eternal, unending death is coming to you. As James chapter 2, verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the law keeps the law, but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. It takes one rotten egg to ruin all of them. Have you failed to keep at least one point of the law in your entire life? Then you are a sinner. And the wages, what you deserve, what God owes you is death. Death. Death, physical that not only transfers you into that only transfers you into death eternal but praise be to god he paid my wages to someone else if there ever was a time when a person should be grateful that his wages were given to someone else it should definitely be when it comes to our standing before a holy 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 god and this is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, being eternally begotten Son of God, had no need of anything. He was eternally blessed with the Father. But in His love for His people and in accordance with the eternal covenant of redemption, the Son emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And He did so to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Jesus came to die. He entered our human existence as a human in order to go to the cross and tell his father on the cross, Father, what you owe them, meaning death, give it to me. Give it to me. Don't give it to them. Give it to me. And so upon that cross, the father paid him my wages. He gave him what I deserved. Therefore, on that cross, he died because the wages of sin is death. Does by receiving my wages, Jesus did not become rich. He became poor. And because of his death, eternal life is now a free gift. You see, Jesus didn't do all that to help us save ourselves. That's ridiculous. He did it all in order to save us fully 
and totally in Him, Paul says, we are complete. So, do you believe in Him? If not, where else will you go? Where else will you go? I heard prominent podcaster Ben Shapiro say that he rejects Christianity because he rejects the idea of someone else dying to pay for his sins. He believes we must better ourselves. That's his, question. That's his definitive answer. We must better ourselves. If he were in front of me, I would say, no, Ben. In fact, you are bringing condemnation upon yourself. Are you really telling me that one day you will stand before a holy God and tell him, give me my wages? So if I had him in front of me, I would tell him, Ben, just read the Ten Commandments. Examine your life in light of them and ask yourself, how in the world am I ever going to stand before a holy God and give an account for everyone I have broken? Here's the Christian answer. You can't. You can't. Neither circumcision nor our uncircumcision counts for anything. Jewishness cannot save you. Your sin condemns you because the law stands as your judge, not as your friend. Only Jesus is a friend of sinners. So what I would tell them is let the word of God sting you with conviction and then run to Jesus for grace and forgiveness. Only this truth can set us free. Praise God for controversy the kind in which the freeness of salvation is defined and preserved for generations to come. So here are a few points of f- for further meditation for you. And remember, this is a two-part sermon. We're going to finish it next week, and I'm going to bring out the, the greater, the weightier implications next week even more. So please be sure to be here next week. So here's the first one, a practical note. In the midst of controversy, don't lose your capacity for thanksgiving. Did you notice the apostles? Paul and Barnabas. If you look at verses 3, 4, and 12, you will notice that Paul and Barnabas did not lose sight of the work of God even as they faced difficulties. They took every opportunity, even during the council meeting, to declare all that God had done. Sometimes we, we get so caught up in the challenges that we forget about the blessings right before our eyes. I encourage you not to be this way. If you find yourself bogged down by trials, find the beauty in it. Remember, God is always at work. Recognize what he is doing in the midst of it all. Rejoice and give thanks. Number two, in the major issues, be ready to seek many counselors. As we saw, Paul and Barnabas sought the counsel of the elders and the apostles. They worked together. There's much wisdom in that. It proves we don't have all the answers and that we need the body of Christ One of the things that I love about a church being led by a plurality of elders, like our church is, GCC, is that the eight of us sharpen each other constantly. I've learned so much from these men. Because there is a plurality, no elder, myself included, can ever get away with sloppy thinking or subjective arbitrariness. Plurality breeds wisdom, accountability, and mutual edification. So be grateful for your elders. I know I am. If I can contribute to them a small percentage of what they have contributed to me, I will count myself blessed. 
But you likewise don't seek to live your life in isolation. Surround yourself with those who will offer godly counsel in times of need. This is wisdom. And finally, gospel truth is worth the controversy. Gospel truth is worth the controversy. It is interesting to me that even Barnabas, what does his name mean? Son of encouragement. Even he engaged in the debate. He was probably a very meek man. And yet when he came to the truth of the gospel, he was willing to engage in battle. You know why they did? It was because they were enamored with truth, not with their pet peeves. This wasn't silly discussion in which the personal opinions of many took over everything. Notice that the elders and even the apostles themselves were not seeking to create new truth to satisfy their own desires or inflate their pride. Their pride. Rather, they were seeking to understand the objective truth outside of them, already given by God in Scripture, understand the will of the Holy Spirit, and submit. They were not seeking to win an argument. They were seeking to be obedient. Gospel truth is worth it. Paul and Barnabas, along with the apostles and the elders, could have chosen to keep things peaceful and let everyone believe what they wanted to believe, but at what cost? At the cost of the gospel of grace. Remember, it is the truth that sets us free, not compromise. But this is not over yet. We still have much controversy to cover. It's going to get, get very, very interesting, so be sure to be here next week. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus. There is absolutely no hope apart from it. So I pray for the ones who have entered into this room or who are listening, who are trusting in themselves that they are righteous. I pray that as they consider your law and as they consider the death of Jesus, they will come to the conclusion that what they need, they don't have. And that the only one who can provide that righteousness for them is the one who died upon the cross. For we truly believe that we will be saved only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that through your spirit, you will take what has been preached here this morning and apply it to our hearts. We trust you. We love you. And may all the glory be yours. In Jesus' name, amen.